Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 177 of the show, and it's Thursday, January the 18th, 2024, as I record this. And I hope it finds you well, better than I was last week anyway. I got back from a funeral up in Edinburgh with a nice dose of COVID and spent most of last week fairly unwell. I tested negative on Saturday and have been getting better steadily since, but it's put me about a week behind on everything, and yes, I am recording this intro scrambling along at the last minute, thanks to a timely reminder from the lovely Katie. My goal at the moment is to avoid long COVID, so I'm making sure to convalesce properly before ramping back up gradually to previous levels of activity. One casualty of this is the latest book, From Your Head to Their Hands, How to Write publish and market training manuals for historical martial artists. It is ready to go, but I was supposed to record the audiobook last week. That didn't happen, obviously, as I didn't want to give the lovely engineer COVID, and also I was simply not fit to work. And the studio isn't free until next month, so I've decided to not wait for the audio and to launch the book in the usual text formats as soon as I've checked the print proofs, which are currently on their way. So it should be coming out next week. And of course, I will tell you all about it in the next podcast episode and give you a link where you can go and buy it. I also have the first draft of the layout of the new wrestling book from medieval manuscript to modern practice, The Wrestling Techniques of Fiori de Liberi. And isn't that a catchy title? Um, So that is well on course to be ready to publish in March. So as a cabinet may pair well with a stake, so this book will pair very well with the Abrazzari online course I launched last year. And I will probably sneak a discount code for the course into the book. And yes, of course, I will let you know when the book is ready on the show. You may recall that I went to the Stibbert collection in Florence recently. Or you may have not heard that, but I did. While I was in Florence a couple of weeks ago, uh, I went to the Stibbert collection and it was marvellous. They have a famous fencing doublet there. And this time, for this visit, it happened to be on display. And so I took all the photos I possibly could from every possible angle and I put them all in a Dropbox folder, posted a link in the Sal space on swordpeople.com. So anyone who would like access to those photos, perhaps they want to make a, a reconstruction of the doublet, or perhaps they just want to look at details of the stitching. I've done my best. It's in a glass case, but I did my best with my phone to get a bajillion pictures from every possible angle. That folder uh, is, there's a link to that folder uh, in the Sal space on swordpeople.com. So if you're not already on Sword People, but you want to have a look at those photos, you'll need to go and create a free account to go see them. And of course, you're welcome to use those photos however you like. I don't need credit and I don't need, you know, any kind of copyright waivers or whatever. Use them however you please. And of course, if you happen to make a fencing doublet in my size, that's an exact reproduction, then, well, I might just buy it off you. Who, Who knows? Now, my caffeine detox for the purposes of improving sleep is going well. Um, I've had a couple of accidental lapses. Um, For example, last Sunday, I just completely forgot that kombucha is made of green tea and so has caffeine in it. And so that sort of knocked my two-day zero caffeine streak off. And also having COVID muddied the waters quite a bit. Um, But I'm now using an aura ring to track my sleep. And I am at now four days completely caffeine-free in a row. 
Um, I tapered off. I didn't just go straight cold turkey. I tapered off. I cut out all caffeine except my morning coffee. That's one coffee with breakfast. And then got rid of that. Um, but even then, sort of relapsed a couple of times. For instance, uh, Tuesday last week, I've been taking painkillers and stuff for the COVID symptoms. I wanted to come off the painkillers because I don't like taking them for more than a few days. And so I had a cup of coffee to help with the feeling better about you know, being ill because that was more important than than getting this caffeine experiment done as quickly as possible. Um, but so honestly, four days, no caffeine. It seems fine. Um, so far, I'm not getting the fantastic sleep improvements I was hoping for. Um, but some things are clearly better. I'm getting more deep sleep for, um, for certain. So when I've done seven days of zero caffeine, uh, I will have a nice clear baseline to draw conclusions from, and then I will see what happens when I add my morning coffee back in, for example. Uh, do that for a couple of days, see what happens, uh, track the sleep, decide whether it should be kept or not, then maybe add in green tea, like I used to drink like eight cups of a day. Um, the way I make it, it doesn't have that much caffeine in it, but still it's a caffeine source. So I want to see exactly what the effect on my sleep is of these various things. Now, this experiment has caused quite a bit of kind of bizarre outrage. It's like some people, their initial reaction to hearing that I've cut out caffeine for an experiment on my own sleep, um, seem to think I want to break into their house and steal all their tea and burn it in front of their eyes. Uh, it is not a reflection on anybody else's life choices and if you want to drink tea and coffee and stuff you absolutely should and I absolutely do and I certainly will again um, but it's, it's funny how this particular drug has permeated through our culture so deeply that many many people are profoundly addicted to it and yet don't think of themselves as drug addicts which is weird because obviously if you can't function without a particular chemical stimulant you are an addict and again, that's not a judgment. That's just a statement of fact. And, you know, I think most people I know are probably addicts to something. And if you're going to be addicted to something, caffeine is certainly better than heroin. But if you're listening to this and you're feeling a little bit threatened, then have a little think about how addicted you want to be to any chemical. And maybe have a think about seeing what life would be like if you were able to go a week without any caffeine at all. Now, I was actually caffeinated when I had this fantastic conversation with Sam. So buckle up and let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Samantha West, who is an instructor at the Dueling Weapons Academy of Renaissance Fencing, aka Dwarf, a historical martial arts club in Barrie, Ontario, where she teaches Italian longsword, 133 sword and buckler, and rapier, amongst other things. She's also involved with running the Gathering of the Blades. You can find the school at barryswords.ca. So without further ado... Samantha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. It's uh, nice to be well, here. <laughs> well, it's ni nice to have you. Um, just one quick question. Do you prefer Sam or Samantha? Sam. Sam. Sam My mom okay. calls me Samantha when I'm in trouble, so I just avoid that. All right. <laughs> okay, so if you hear me say Samantha, yeah. it means that you, you, have, you have overstepped the bounds somewhere and we'll have to edit it out later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, and whereabouts in the world are you? So I'm in Canada. Um, I'm in uh, province Ontario and I'm in a small town named Barrie. And today it's actually a snowstorm outside. You can't even see two feet in front of you. <laughs> wow. So yeah. Classic Canada. I was Classic actually, Canada. I, I taught a seminar in Barrie, Ontario 
about 10 years ago. I, I actually know people who went to the seminar. So oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, one, of you- our, one of our uh, um, board members, Kieran Rowe, was there and he talks very highly of you. He's very oh. jealous that I'm on the podcast and he's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I can tell you how you got on the podcast if you like. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, somebody, uh, who, a regular listener um, and who I sort of know vaguely, um, just recommended you. Said, you should definitely talk to Samantha West. Oh, and wonderful. And sent me a link to your school. And I was like, well, I shall then. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's a very good compliment. Yeah. Uh, so why don't we sort of start ourselves off by um, you telling us how you got into the whole historical martial arts thing. Okay. So it's a it's kind of a really funny story. Um a lot of people will ask me or assume like, oh, do you watch Game of Thrones? Are you, you know, like, are you a historic buff? And, and I am into history, but I'm, I'm, it's not that I'm not, I'm not into Game of Thrones. I don't really watch TV very often. Um, but what it was is a friend of mine, Meredith, had been asking me over and over again to take this woman's uh, longsword intro. And I kept on saying, you know, no, it's not really my thing. Um, even though, um, how wrong you were. Yeah. Well, that's it exactly <laughs> like seven years later, I'm, I'm running one of my own clubs. Um, but you know, when you say no to someone so often, when they ask you to just spend time with you and I, I just thought, you know, I'm going to do it anyways, you know, she's kind enough yeah. to be asking me. And, and so I went to my first longsword and, uh, class and I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was going to be terrible. I'm not very coordinated. Um, <laughs> I'm very clumsy. Um, so I didn't think I would be very good at it or, you know, or enjoy it as much as I did, but I loved it. Once I started doing it, I was just absolutely hooked. Um, you know, in the past, one of the, uh, the sports I had been doing was, um, bouldering specifically like rock climbing. Um, yeah. and I, I just, in that, yeah. And it's very anaerobic. Right. And so <laughs> fencing is very aerobic. And so I'm, I've never been very good. Like if you've ever seen that one person in class, who's like, you know, looks like just a manic person trying to keep up with class. That's me. Like it's, I'm, I'm just not coordinated enough. And I thought, Oh Jesus, this is not going to work out very well for me. And I, you know what? I loved it. I loved everything about it. I can I say you clearly are coordinated enough. You just weren't yet. No. Yeah. That's it. Or yes. <laughs> but if you, maybe Caitlin is good enough at editing out all the times I've stabbed myself with someone else's sword. <laughs> No, but, I mean, but that's, that's, that's part of the process. And actually, yeah. it's, I think it's really useful for people listening who are maybe thinking about taking up historical martial arts. We tend to look at, like, experienced fencers and watch them and go, oh, my God, I couldn't do that. Like, yeah. like you go to the circus and you watch people do extraordinary acrobatic stuff and you go, there's no way I could do that, which is true. Right then, then and there today, you can't. And there is some stuff that maybe you will never be able to do, but you can certainly get an awful lot closer to it over the next couple of years if you practice than you are right now. Absolutely. I do agree with that. Um, when I, I think about how I was in the beginning and to where I am now, I think it's it's definitely like two vastly different areas. And yeah. even though I feel like I could always be better personally for myself, um, that's my own journey. Like, But I know that there's a very vast you know, giant gap there from beginning to where I am now. Yeah, it's actually useful for many students to record them when they've had like, I don't know, two or three months training mm-hmm. and just, just hold on to the video and then record them again a year later and then put the videos side by side and let them watch them. Oh yeah. We, we do that quite often. Um, one of our instructors, Colin Sharkey, 
Um, he's like, he is a big fan of recording all of our fights. Even we have like fight nights on Wednesdays and we started picking up a nut, like fright night or fight nights on Wednesdays, but also study group. And then Friday nights, we do another fight club and we take, we tape all of it. We record almost every fight, okay. um, to look back on that. Or we have a YouTube channel where we post a lot of that. He posts a lot of that. And, um, just to be able to look back and see how well we're doing. Okay. So, so, uh, who ran that first class you went to? Do you remember? So it was done at MSC. Um, MSC. Yeah, which was um, Medieval Canada or Swordplay Canada. Okay. And we, it was call, it was Colin who ran it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like a small. It was done in a church. It was a very small club, um, and it was great. I, I really, but you know what I liked even more than like it was the people. I really, really enjoyed the atmosphere of um, like HEMA itself and the people that are involved in HEMA. I just think it's a wonderful, the people are lovely. You know, I, I've been very fortunate in the fact that I haven't, you know, run into anyone I don't really enjoy. Yeah, I was going to say some of the people are lovely. That's true. In fact, right. I, I'll go so far as to say most of the people are lovely. But, you know, when any, when any sort of subculture gets big enough, there's always going to be some people in there who you wish weren't. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I've been fortunate. Like I have been on the outskirts of that. Like I've seen it in the periphery. Um, mm-hmm. and I've heard stories of, of that as well. Like in the periphery, um, from other people experiencing it from other groups or, um, our, um, I think though the community tends to be really good about showcasing if someone's not, um, someone's too aggressive, if somebody's too, you know, like misogynistic or there's, there's like racial, you know, that they tend to shout that out quite quite early to just kind of be like, hey, we we barred this person from our club, or we have you know we have concerns about this one person, and so it, it's changed a lot in the last five years or so. Oh yeah, it, yeah. I promise you, fifteen years ago it was not like that. <laughs> I can see that. I can see. I can see that. Um, I can see that because, like, even with the rock climbing community, you know, like they're vastly wonderful, but you have like one or two. Un- unfortunate apples that can ruin a whole entire bunch you know like that's, okay and that's 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 the thing of the whole um rotten apple analogy is the mm-hmm. whole point of it is one rotten apple spoils the whole bunch it's mm-hmm. not it's just one rotten apple no no it right? doesn't because you, you you hear you hear that flipped quite a lot but no. it's not so yeah so so the i imagine your club is pretty good i mean i've looked at your website and everything mm-hmm. it, it seems um it seems to have What's the best way to put this? It states its position on certain social issues clearly enough that it will f- automatically filter out most of the assholes. Yes, we're very um, adamant about having a space that is conducive to um, like a an open an open kind of space. Like we are LGBTQ friendly, we are disabled friendly, or you know differently abled friendly. We are like our position is that. Um, there are no limitations. HEMA is for everyone. And, but at the same time, you know, like you, you can't be so tolerant that you accept intolerance. Right. So, so our position on that is that, is that, um, the moment that somebody starts becoming intolerant in that aspect, then we are, we bar them from the club. Have you had to bar very many people? We haven't, but there have been one or two people that have. um, So a lot of people will comment on our um, social media page before they will, 
you know, inquire about coming to class. Okay. And so we, we have, we have filtered people that way and have, sure. have, yeah. Yeah. And also just, just having your position made very clear. Like, you know, I, I have my sword people online community thing mm-hmm. and it's got a, the sort of rainbowy flag with all the extra bits. So yeah. that's part of its sort of banner. And mm-hmm. that just, that just filters out an awful lot of people who I it, would otherwise have to filter out for violations of the code of conduct. It's, it's, it sure does. Like we have merch and we have, you know, we, post proudly we've done we've you know we um we uh want to do the pride uh parade we are very adamant on our page we are yeah like we we just don't we just don't allow it unfortunately we have another aspect to our club as well which is a historical aspect Mm -hmm. and so some of our members have um you know, Instagram or social media pages where they post themselves in like historical gear and the like. Unfortunately, sometimes um, certain kinds of people will comment, especially when it comes to like Viking pages. Yeah. Um, so we've had to be very careful about things like that. Unfortunately, it's, I feel really sorry for the Viking community because you know they are most of them are just exactly the same as the rest of us. Like Absolutely. they're just they just particularly they like a particular culture, a particular period, a particular kind of yep. weapon or whatever. And but that specific uh, sort of historical time period also attracts vastly more than its fair share of complete arseholes. Unfortunately, I think so too. Like we have one member who is who historically, like he is a Viking. He dresses in Viking garb. He fights Viking style, and he will sometimes get comments that are that are unwanted. And so it for us, it's it's a thing, and we don't stop doing it. Because we love yeah. it, he loves it, but we're adamant about the kinds of behavior that we'll accept and the kinds that we won't. It's sure. it's absolutely a thing for us. Um, the last thing that we want is any of our members or ourselves even to feel like we don't belong to some. Hema is for everyone. It's such a wonderful thing. It's such a great. It has something for everyone, and to to make someone feel excluded from that, I think is just unacceptable. I agree. Like, um, okay, so tell me something about the role of instructors in your club so, so we have a well so it kind of comes down from the top we have kieran Rowe, who is our chair and he's amazing he's kind of like no he he makes most of the curriculum for us now whether okay. or not i follow his curriculum is another story but okay. um <laughs> he's uh you know he because he's been doing it the longest he was at Fet, like he did um college and and fencing when he was a kid um, and then transferred over into Hema. And I find some of the best fencers are fencers that started off in Olympic fencing. Yeah, they I did Olympic trans- fencing from yeah. 87 to about 94. Yeah, they just have an understanding of measure that is just incredible mm. to me. Um, and footwork so, training. Absolutely. The, <laughs> like David Ito. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I love him so much. <laughs> and, and yet at the same time, I'm like, how are you? How? Like, how? It's well, okay. just incredible. The thing to remember about David Ito is he is a professional circus performer, which Absol- means which yes. means he is physically extraordinary. I uh, I right. I have known Ito for years, and and I can tell you some stories that would just but like he is infuriatingly amazing at what he does. Um, yes. <laughs> um, but like so so we trained so. Kieran was my instructor, one of my instructors originally before we started the club uh, and then became my coach. Um, And then the rest of us kind of take a cue from him. And the way that we like to instruct at, um, at our club is it's mostly fun 
are play-based. A lot of it is like book work. A lot of it is boring, not boring. Like I love footwork and a lot of people don't, but I, I love it. I think it's a fundamental part of the whole, you know, fencing. But people who don't like footwork don't like practicing footwork when it's, they feel that it's disconnected from what they're actually trying to do. So my rule of thumb is that when the student has a footwork problem that they can become aware of, Mm-hmm. Then when I teach them a footwork drill that will help them solve that problem, there's no issue with them being bored with it or anything because they understand what it's for. It's not just, they're not just having to adopt this sort of general faith that yes, footwork is good for you. It's mm-hmm. okay. I am failing in this thing for this reason. This footwork exercise will help. All I do is footwork exercise for a bit. And actually, yes, it helps. And that way they're actually interested and engaged with the footwork. They don't, they don't yeah. find it to be this sort of tedious thing that they just have to do before they can get onto the fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I find the same thing too. I, in one of my old clubs, that's kind of how it was. It was very disconnected. Mm-hmm. And so you couldn't really, you know what I mean? You couldn't really yeah. see the connection there. One of the things that we've, we've tried to do is, um, as instructors at personally, myself as an instructor, I, um, I introduce a lot of play into mine. Like we play games, we play this, like, um, I love tennis balls. So there's a lot of tennis ball, tennis ball play in my, in my, okay. in my class. But I, I think ultimately, well- so what sort of tennis ball exercises are we talking about? So one of the things that I do is um, everyone stands around in a circle. Because mm-hmm. we have, I can, I, I think right now my intro students are at like 10 or between 10 and 11. And so like the number of people. So what I do is we stand in the gym and we have all these tennis balls and, and I'll have, uh, you know, Caitlin standing off to the side with a bag of tennis balls. And so what I do is I have one tennis ball and I start out, everyone introduces themselves and then... I will throw the ball at someone, call their name, and they have to catch it. And they have to catch it um, either with both hands to start with, or then I'll, I'll flag out like left hand only, right hand only. And then as the as we go forward through the thing, if you miss a ball, you either have to do jumping jacks, push-ups, or sit-ups. And then jump back up to catch the ball like while people are throwing it around. And then we can add as many as five or six balls at a go. So we're constantly like throwing these balls and catching them right or left hand. We're trying to do it in a fashion where we're not falling. We're catching it in a, like it, but that happens slowly over time. So in the beginning, we're very uncoordinated, you know, we're running after a ball and so on and so forth. But then after a while, it starts becoming more coordinated. They're able to catch it faster. They're not, they're not falling over their legs or their feet. Um, So, you know, that's one of the play things that we do. Another one is when I'm doing my rapier class, I like to have my students throw the ball at the wall and then lunge into a nice catch into that like thrust. Um, I also make them throw it in the air and do like a small little lunge to catch the ball and, and, um, you know, to practice that like steady movement. Uh, we also play, uh, like one of the things we do too is I call, I call it the slappy game. <laughs> so we take soft gloves and we find a partner It's one glove per partner. And then what we do is we, it's about measure. So the game is that like no hitting to the face, but like we want to be able to hit our partner with the glove without being struck ourselves with their, like with their glove. Right. So yeah, we, yeah, we, we call that glove fencing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we do that. I've, we also start, we also did, um, uh, like tag, like flag tag, where we have a belt that has all these little tiny tabs on it. And the premise of that is to pull a tab without having someone pull our tab from the oh, belt. Okay. 
Yeah. So, so, so everyone has their own tab on their own belt and you yeah. have to kind of collect as many tabs as possible. That's right. Yeah. Last okay. man standing. I find these things to be like, and it breaks up the day. So we have like a two hour lesson and I'll do it for like 10 to 20 minutes, 10 minutes generally in the middle to kind of break up yeah. the first section and to, into the second section. So wait, so, wait them all up a bit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I also think, um, one of my jobs is not a job, but like one of the, my goals as an instructor is, um, that my, I, I love it when one of my students can beat me well, when they win it. I, I think, uh, uh, as an instructor, I'm not supposed to be better than my students. Like I ultimately want my students to be better than me. Like I want them to excel. I want them to progress beyond me. My job is just to create a space where that they're able to do that, you know, to right. facilitate them in that in that journey. So. Yeah, I mean, Vanessa Williams could always beat her coach in a in a tennis match. Yeah, yeah. But absolutely. she wouldn't be winning those those Grand Slams if she didn't have a coach. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's it's it's. I mean, I started coaching. I guess last year was was one of my goals as well. I sorry, are you are you distinguishing between uh, instructing and coaching um, or are you using them interchangeably? I, no, so I don't. So, uh, instructing and coaching are different for me. Um, okay. instructing is like a school based whereas coaching will, uh, it's a tournament based thing. So that's okay. when I go to Spe- tournaments specifically. Yeah. So, so when you say instructing, you're talking about teaching classes in your club. And when you say coaching, you're talking about coaching fences in tournaments. That's right. Okay, fine. Yeah, that's quite a common distinction. It's not the same distinction that I use. And so quite a lot of my students who may be listening would also have a different distinction between the terms. So it's always best to flag these things up. Yeah, yeah. So so there is a kind of, it's it's vastly different in the sense that when I'm in class, I'm kind of, even if I'm instructing or there's a, we're doing like sparring, you know, I'm talking about technique, we're working on, um, you know, a style or like a problem that needs to be solved. But when I, I find when I go to tournaments with some of my fencers, that's not what they need. You know, that's already done. What they need is, yeah. um, emotional counsel, like, you know, like, yeah. And, and they need, they need warming up. They need, yeah. um, getting into the right headspace. That's right. Then they need sort of coaching to stay in the right headspace and take the right approach under the pressure of the actual fencing bout. And then they need to make sure that, um, how they react to however the bout went is managed properly so that they will do better next time or or keep improving or basically be happy about how things have gone. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so um, you mentioned when in the sort of the, the pre-interview chat um, mm-hmm. that I should bring up something about how the club react, relates to the community. Yeah, so... Um as a community based club, like, cause we, we're, we're not a for-profit. We're actually nonprofit. Okay. And, and so one of the things we do is we, um, we, we go to, we try to do as many parades actively. We try to do, we've been working to work with other charities, okay. um, to, to help, um, like raise awareness for certain issues that are, you know, happening in our community. We have, um, certain charities that like personally that we've been working with on a personal like level, maybe not on a, cl- um, so there's the season center that me and my husband specifically, um, have been working with for several years. Um, and what that helps, that? 
It's, it's a space for kids that have are grieving. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and we are trying to reach out to them as a club to kind of get in, um, see if we can work with them. Um, we also do, um, we also work, sorry. We also do a lot of like things. Um, we do events where we our armed fighters will get dressed up for kid, like kids things. We've done, Mm -hmm. um, camps and things like that for kids that are, you know, um, a little that are, you know, having issues. We've done, um, you know, things that, uh, like we try to be out in the community as much as possible in that context, um, to try and help out. Yeah. I think it's important, um, to be visible within the community and also to have that reflect back into the club. In what way does it reflect back into the club? I think that when you are present in your community, um, that, and the community is aware of you, um, that, you know, you're fostering a, a really good relationship in that way. But more than that too, it, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's a way to, to show the community that, um, that there are alternatives to things that, um, that there's nothing, you know, that there, are, the community is growing, that we're able to have, like, we, we do a lot of swords in the park. And so, um, just over here, right in the inner city. And so, you know, people will come up to us, kids will come up to us and we talk about it all the time. We talk about the history. We talk about being in the, you know what I mean? So they're able to come up to us and talk without being afraid. We do, um, things at the library for free. We're doing, um, um, this March break, we're putting on, um, an, an event for the library for kids for programming during the March break season. Um, just like we'll have our nights go up. It won't be a it won't be modern HEMA based. It'll be historical HEMA based. And we'll talk about the history and we'll talk about, you know, the nights and we'll talk about our armor and, and things like that. Um, we've also, I've been going, me and another fellow board member have been going, have been going into the schools, um, Hillcrest specifically, and they do like a a medieval week. And we talk and we go in and we, we do a little bit of fencing and we talk about, you know, what it was like and what, what we wear and how, you know, what a knight would do essentially. So, yeah. Is this in any way related to the gathering? It, it is, it, it is, and it's not, um, the gathering is actually for, um, the HEMA community per se. Um, what is it? it, So uh, one time we were at, at a pub and we were discussing, you know, someone was trying to convince us to do a tournament and as much as at the time we would have loved it, we just weren't prepared for that. And it's a lot kind of work. Wanted, yeah, we, we just did one actually this week, like this two weeks ago. And it is a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. And, and gathering is a lot of work as well, but we wanted something that wasn't, you can go to a tournament almost any, like there are lots of tournaments, sure. but we wanted something different. We wanted something that was not ed, like more educational based, like something for something that gives back and gives to um, HEMA is. And I know that like tournaments do give back to those who go and participate and it's a wonderful thing. And I like to do them too. But what it is, is it's a, it's basically like a seminar for HEMA is we, we have uh, 10 or how many spaces, like six or seven spaces, eight spaces, I think, where we invite um, instructors and our schools to send a, um, what they would do you know, what they want to talk about, you know, we had, you know, body, we had small sword things, weapons that people usually wouldn't use or because I don't know if it's the same, but many schools only do long sword. 
So yeah. Uh, so they don't really get a taste of anything else. We had um, Irish. We had Callum doing Irish stick fighting. We had you know Dennis doing uh, Boken. And so they come and they do a forty-five minute to an hour instruction. And it's just a weekend full of that. And, and it's, it's amazing. Right. So So it's sort of like a, like a historical martial arts buffet. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And people can pick and choose what they want. Right. And then we, you know what I mean? I think it's, it's different than a tournament, but it's also amazing. And, and the reception has been amazing. Honestly, I, I did tournaments as a sport fencer back in the eighties and nineties and I've organized a few historical martial arts tournaments every now and then, nothing terribly sort of big. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just, for me, they're just not a good use of my time as, a, as an organizer or as a martial artist. Because mm-hmm. I sort of, all the things I was ever going to learn from tournament fencing, I've already learned in sport fencing, which is much more developed. Yeah. Cause you know, it's been, they've been developing it for like a hundred years or more. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's, I'm very glad that the tournament scene exists. Yeah. Um, and, but events where the tournament is the main event and the classes are kind of on the side don't yeah. interest me terribly much. Yeah. I find too, like when I'm going to a tournament and I've signed up, I don't have time to take those classes right. and I want to, because I find that they're very interesting, but I just don't have time or the energy at that point. Exactly. And I think many people aren't. So here was one of the other reasons why we did that. Not everybody is interested in tournaments. We only have a few people in our club that are interested in actively doing tournaments. And, and that is one part of HEMA, but it's not the entire part of HEMA. Yeah. And I think that you're only really catering to a few people instead of the group. And there are a lot of people that would come out to classes, you know, in very interesting ones on a varying amount of topics, as opposed to going to a, a tournament. Yeah, I mean, I when I teach seminars in various places, mm-hmm. there's very often a tournament going on somewhere that people could have gone to instead, but instead they're yeah. coming to a class because that's what they want. Um, that's it. Yeah. You know, and, and for, let me just, just in case this is the average listener is confused on this point, I would say that there are some students who are better off going to the tournament than coming to my class because of where they happen to be in their development and the topic of the class. So it's yeah. not like they should be picking the class. It's just we need to have all of these things. Yeah. I, yes. No, you're right. We do. And, and one of the things that I've said earlier on is that HEMA is for everyone. And so mm. we're, we're trying to cater to maybe not, you know, I, lo- I do love tournament fencing. I'm, I'm one of the ones who does tournament fencing. Okay. Um, but, but not, not everyone does like it. Like the, not everyone feels the need to do it. And we have two, like, I'm 45 right now. I'll be okay. 46 in March. And, you know, we have people that are in our class that are 60, you know, 70. Sure sometimes and they're they're not into that but they want to learn they want to engage they want to you know that they want to you know promote their or advance their skill and tournament fencing is not is not for them or even younger people we have i have someone who's much younger than me who's just not into it it's not into the you know the stress and the you know it's just not his thing and i i get that too it's not for everyone um and also, I don't think it indicates whether or not you're a good fencer. I think it just indicates whether or not you're a good tournament fencer. Yeah, because good can be read many different ways. I That's mean, right. You can have someone who is technically a beautiful fencer, lovely to watch, lovely to fence, yeah. but they just don't hold it together in tournaments because it's just not their environment. Um, That's it. And, and you can have people who do very, very well in tournaments, as we have seen, who are 
mindless thugs, frankly. The, yes. Absolutely. I said it, so you don't you don't have to feel it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I said that. Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. I yeah, absolutely. Like I've I've walked away from tournaments. You know, I came home from a tournament one time, and I said to my husband, "I think I broke my arm. Can you take me to the hospital?" <laughs> he was like, "You're kidding me," and I, I was like, "No, I didn't." Thankfully, it was just a hematoma. But um, okay. But sometimes, yeah, like it's it's sometimes you get the. And I don't want to say like peasant, but I mean, we all know what that means. Um, yeah. You know, who's just using brute brutality. And yeah. some people are just like, hey, I got to work. This is, you know, there's, I have to work or I work in an office or my hands are, you know, I need them. Mm. And, you know, unfortunately what? when, sorry, so what ahead. job do you do? So, um, I work as a server and yeah, I started doing that because I, <laughs> I know this is going to sound. Weird. I have a ton of kids. I have four kids. Really? And, oh yeah. my god! I, I have two, and that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have four okay. kids. Okay, respect <laughs> from this end. If you can handle four children, <laughs> we do. We ha we have four kids. So I needed something that would be flexible with the club and with my family life. Um, okay. And I'm fortunate enough that I can just, you know, work part time for that. Okay. Um, which enables me then to like dedicate a lot of time to the club and to my family, which is by server. Do you mean, do you mean in a restaurant? <clears throat> yeah. I work at a, okay. like a high end restaurant in town here, which is more okay. like a family. I've been working there since my last son started school. So wow. seven years ago, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've been around for a while. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually in a, in a good restaurant, the waiting mm -hmm. staff are a really critical component of the success of the restaurant. They are, they are, they definitely are because they're that bridge between the back of the house and the front of the house. So right. it's, it is pretty essential. Um, yeah, I like it. I find it's high pace. It's fast enough for me to, to keep, keep, keep me involved. Mm -hmm. And I love the staff and it's, it's a small, it's a small business. So, um, I've known the owner since he's owned it and it's perfect for me and it's a block away from my house. Oh, handy. <laughs> Yeah, so we live like I again. I live in Barrie, but I live in the inner city of Barrie. So I live downtown, and um, I'm really prominent in my community. So I I, I walk everywhere, where, everywhere I go. So I, it, if it's not walk to, I don't go. So what what do you mean by prominent in your community? Um, so I guess like over the years, you know, I've spent a lot of time in a community. I worked at uh, like I didn't work, but a volunteer at a um, art based studio. You know, I've done tons of charity events. Is one of the things I love to do. We're involved in a lot of like again like the season center and a lot of local charities. Um, I have a community a community garden outside of my. I ha actually have quite a large not a large property, but I'm I'm blessed with a really nice side yard to the road, and so I have a lot of um, garden beds I put purposely outside of my my um, my yard in order for the community to have access to that. Okay. And uh, so, you know, you're the sort of person who, when you walk down the street in your hometown, people often say hello because they know you. Yes. Okay. And it's a good thing and also not a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, uh, um, that has pros and cons, should we say. It does. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, now, you have a fairly eclectic mix of styles you're interested in. Um, I mentioned Italian longsword, 133 sword and buckler, Italian rapier, which are three of my specialties, incidentally. Yes. So we can, we can geek out as much as you like about those. Um, what prompted that breadth? Why, why so many? So it's, it's neurodivergence, maybe, like a little neurospiciness. Okay. Um, 
I, what really prompted it was I went to, um, I went to Fran's event in England, the Bible oh, okay. store. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So, Fran was one of the first people I interviewed on the show. I think she's like oh, episode three or four. She's lovely. She's really, really lovely. Um, and it really changed the course, I think for me. So I, again, I was at MSC and we only did longsword. Right. And then we found out that the way that Fran was running by the sword um, was mixed weapons. And it, depending on what you roll, it was a roll of the dice, essentially. And okay. whatever the die rolled on is what the, the weapon you would use in this tournament. Oh, really? That's an interesting right. idea. It, it, very, it really was. And so we, <laughs> we, I went with the, my fellow um, board member, Caitlin Rose, and we had no, like, we'd only done longsword. I think we'd only been doing fencing for two years or something like that. And we thought, mm -hmm. oh, let's go to England. Let's do this thing. Let's do it. And uh, I think Kieran Rowe and Greg Sagres were, were some of our instructors at the time. And they quickly tried to give us a rundown in a week on how to do like <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything. And it was, they did their best, but oh my gosh, it was just horror. Like we were not, we were ill prepared for, for what was about to happen. Yeah. Um, well, you can't, you can't prepare somebody <laughs> for that in a week unless, unless all of their fencing up to that point has been um, aimed towards fundamentals and principles rather than aimed towards technique. Oh, no, no. The, yeah, so the first bit, not the, not the good part. So mm. we were not prepared. Um, we went and I, I did quite well in Longsword. And I, oh, I remember getting in the ring with this wonderful, like lovely woman. I can't she she ended up winning the uh, a rapier that at that tournament but okay. she was a rapierist and she she just annihilated me and I remember oh, yeah, she would. oh she was amazing uh, she was amazing and it was beautiful and I remember the whole entire time fencing her thinking this is amazing this is like the most amazing thing and you know and she and she just trounced me like I I didn't hold a candle and I lo I loved every minute of it and I remember I walked off from being just beaten beaten up and i looked at caitlin and i said you need to find me a rapier we need to order one while we're here and we need to have it delivered to the house and sure enough like that night that afternoon she had us both rapiers uh bought and they were being shipped to canada to to our you know by the time i was like i want it there by the time i get home <laughs> <laughs> um because she's such a whiz on like the you know that sort of thing um, oh that sort oh, of no, thing I, that she <laughs> i mean i you know, when, when, when people tell stories like that, it just reminds me of what it was like back in the day where if you wanted a rapier, it might take you three months to find someone who could actually make one. Oh, and then yeah. probably a year to get one from them, then it wouldn't be quite right. And, yeah. but, but you can, you can nowadays, you can just go online and you can just yeah. order a decent yeah. rapier and, or even an excellent rapier and yeah. it'll be at your house a week, two weeks, a month later, depending. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you could just do that. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so convenient. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, in saying that about equipment, it's from when I first started to now, the access to equipment is so much better than it was even yeah. you know, six years ago. Sure. Um, but, but that kind of started me on the journey to, you know, all the swords. And so, okay. um, I deep dived into rapier and I love, I love Italian rapier. My new obsession with rapier is, um, Spanish rapier. Okay. I'm trying. Uh, I it's hard so to get what, my hands what on. What sources? What sources are you using for Italian and for Spanish? Uh, so for Italian right now, I'm using Capoferro and Fabrizio. Okay. Which I do love. 
Um, <laughs> I, one of my fellow instructors, when he bought his book, he was like, this is amazing. And then one of, uh, Kieran says to me, Oh, Sharky only read the, the second book and hasn't read the first one. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I, yeah. I'm just, I'm just having a little flex here. This is my 1610 yeah. Oh no. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Uh, this one here is my favorite. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so you're working with, um, Capofero yeah. directly or using translations or what? I'm, I'm trying to do both. So I'm working with Capofero. I got Capofero directly. And then I was like, when I first started reading it, I was like, I am not prepared as somebody. It's hard. Who, it is so hard. Oh my gosh. And so I'm not prepared for that. And so I got a, I got, I got a translation. Okay. I got somebody to, to do it. Um, like I'm working with the translation now that I've done that and I've done it enough. I'm starting to work with it directly. Okay. I find that that's kind of the best way. Same with a lot of books that like Lichtenhauer's, like no pictures, just a poem about fighting and you have no idea what you're reading until you do it. And then you're like, oh, this makes sense, right? Um, I don't think anybody interprets Lichtenhauer's longsword <laughs> stuff just from the settle. I think everybody uses the 15th century glosses. Yeah, with the oh, illustrations yeah. and the explanations. Oh, you have to. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, in the beginning, though, you're looking at it like this is just a poem to swords. Like this doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yeah. And then for beats too, I'm, I'm doing, I'm starting to work with the direct, but I, again, I, I like the translations as well. Um, so how good is your Italian? I'm sorry? So how, how good is your Italian? It's not that great. Uh, so... Okay. <laughs> Because I'm not like, very good. Favris is a much clearer writer than Capoferro, but and Capoferro, I mean, my Italian is not too bad, but Capoferro is a beast. Oh, it's it's not great. It's it's slow, um, and I'm doing it like not in the classroom. I'm doing it personally for myself. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. But French was my first language. You can't like I know oh, really? Canadians. Yeah, okay. so it's not that every Canadian speaks French fluently. Um, my fa my dad was fr um, French speaking, and so I went to a French school when I was a child. And so I find uh, that okay. some I of the Latin, help. yeah, some of the Latin based languages tend to be a little bit more easier for me. Um, but it's okay. slow work. It's it's very, and it's not even just that; it's the time period. Yeah. <laughs> so like Middle Italian and and anything from that period is just like there is no Google Translate that's going to help you on this. It's well, great. On, honestly, the language hasn't changed that much in six hundred years. I mean, if you if you can, if you read Fiore aloud yes. to a modern Italian, they'll understand what you're talking about. There'll be a couple of words they won't get, but yeah. like, like Fiore uses stanco, which now means tired, to mean left, yeah. so as in left hand, yeah. right? Um, but other than that, I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. So if you if you could put it into modern spelling and put it mm -hmm. into Google Translate, I mean, you'd get a bit of a mess, but. I mean, you get a bit of a mess with people translate whatever language you're using. Uh, no, absolutely. Uh, it actually helps that we have um, uh, someone in our class who does, who took, like he's a teacher, but he, his, his thing is, is Italian, right? Okay. So he, he's like into translating a lot of that stuff. And uh, I remember the first time I got um, Lichtenhauer and I was like, um, or, um, you know, I just needed some translation and it just happens mm -hmm. to my best friends from Berlin. And ah. so I'm, I'm like, I know, I know fencing's not your thing, Svea, but can you please tra translate this for me in a way that I can understand? So I have a couple of friends that I'm able to pull from when I'm having a hard time. Okay. That, that does make life a bit easier. Yeah, it does. Um, um, but it also helps, like, we're very passionate about all swords. I find that my thirst for swords is 
Like I just picked up the small sword and I can't even tell you how oh, much I, I love it. Oh, I love small sword. Isn't oh it my God. It's, it's so what, pretty. It, it was my first, it was my first historical fencing style that I was ever any actually good at. Really? Really? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think when I think about it, I think it's just such a tasty little sword. It's so lovely and wonderful. And every time I fence with it, I just get giggly. Like I love, I just love it. Yeah. It's, it's nice. It's really lovely. Have yeah. you ever handled an original? I'm sorry? Have you ever handled an original small sword? No, I I don't. I don't. I, I, I do all of my solo training stuff for small sword with uh, like late 18th century original. And it is a murder spike. Is it really? It's, it's gorgeous. <laughs> oh, it's just like, it's a, it, is, it is so nasty. It is oh, so no. vicious. It is oh. so like, I'm going to stick 16 holes in your yeah. face. I, that's of, what I want yeah. to do but when I yeah. when I fence with it. Oh, it is it is like a little tiny murder stick, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's such a pretty <laughs> I love I really do love it. I find it also for rapier, I know it's not quite the same, but I find rapier you have a lot more measure, you have a lot more room kind of. And I find with a small sword you don't. And so it kind of micro exaggerates what's happening. And yeah, so, and it's it's more of a knife fight. It's like yeah, it's, it should be for. So, I mean, if you do it the way it's shown in the most of the texts, anyway, Angelo, yeah. for example. Yeah, uh, it's it's fenced pretty damn close, and so there isn't time for all of that fancy stuff. It is sort of parry, pass, parry, murder. Da, 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 da. It's, yeah. it's very, yeah. very quick. It, it oh. reminds me a lot of knife fighting. Yes, it does. I, in fact, it's funny that you would say that because um, I was you know, Wednesday nights when we do study group, I was standing there, I was holding both my rapier and my, and my small sword. And I thought oh, I would, I wish that I had a pairing dagger almost the size as my small sword. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it is such a little tiny, like it is very much like a murder dagger. Like it, yeah. it's lovely. I, I, I find that practicing with it oftentimes, especially with those little cavetions and like these little tiny micro movements, it does help a lot more. I find it, if you're going to mess up, you're going to mess up much faster with that yeah. little tiny dagger than you will with the, the rapier. So what um, sources do you prefer for small sword? Um, I'm kind of all over the place. Kieran uh, is one of my instructors. He's been kind of walk, walking me through them. Um, where am I here? I have, I have all my books around here somewhere, but I, I, Oh, hold on. Like you, I do also have a, a nice little, a nice little bit here, but it's the, it's the army and Navy gentleman's companion. The one I'm going through right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's an unusual choice. By John, uh, MacArthur of the Royal yeah, Navy. MacArthur. Yeah. Yeah. Un that's an unusual choice for a small sword specialist. Um, yeah, it, but interesting. It's a good, good book. Yeah. Which one are you going through right now for that? Um, my, most of my small sword stuff is from Angela. Because oh, is it? it was, yeah, because um, his his school of fencing was originally published in French in 1763, if I recall rightly. Mm -hmm. But his son produced, who's also a professional fencing master in London, produced a translation in 1787 of his father's book while his father oh. was still alive. Right. Nice. And so you know that it is accurate within reason, um, and it is very very specific. Right. It, oh, is, is it? it tells you exactly what to do. Like, oh, maybe. like, like, um, you know, the difference between well, when you go from tears to cart, it moves four inches. He says right. four oh, inches. That's it. Right. So <laughs> I, I have, I have sometimes taken a, a yardstick out 
with my students and made them do this thing just and I hold the arsenic there and make sure it's four inches. I mean, which is a kind of silly thing to do because of course it, it's yeah. never exactly four inches. And for that to actually work, all sorts of other things have to be correct, like your hip position and your shoulder position. Otherwise, the four yep. inches isn't enough. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think when you're practicing like that, it's ideal because it does, like, it beats it into your mind in a way. So that yeah. even if you're slightly off, when you're under pressure, you're still trying to keep to that four inches. Yeah. yeah. To keep it, keep it small, keep it tight. Yeah. And he has, he has a nice breadth too. He, he, he also deals with, you know, um, fencing against a saber, fencing against a rapier, only oh, just really? very short plays. Yeah. And he has some very fancy, cool stuff in there as well, including Maybe some I'll quite, have a look quite at sophisticated it. sequences. Totally I, recommend. And I would. I, I, but you should get it in French. Obviously, oh, I will. You, right. And, yeah. and it just occurs to me um, that as a French, fluent French speaker, mm-hmm. Girard might be a good choice also. Um, okay. I would, I would pick Angelo over Girard for Girard. content. But Girard is glorious. And at the end of Girard, um, this is this is his second edition from 1740. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a lovely, lovely, lovely book. Uh, I had it rebound. Um, but at the end of it, he is doing like how to light a grenade. When a grenade oh, was, no. was, yeah, when a, and he's, <laughs> he's got a bunch of musketeer and, and grenade stuff. Oh, that's fabulous. Right. Yeah. Ah, it's, it's a, it's a fantastic book. So, oh, maybe I will. I mean, yep. MacArthur is great. Yeah. But, but I, my, my heart belongs to Angelo first and Girard second uh, oh, when it comes to sports. I sports. will have a, I, I went with MacArthur because at the time I was, <laughs> so I do study a lot of, like I, so even in Italian, like I, I do, you know, Fiore, but I love body. Um, you know, we, we do everything. And so okay. I, at the time I was like, I, I got the small sword and I was like, I, lo- I love this. And I, but I couldn't dedicate myself to, and back here in Rome, my, like my primary, you know, he was like, this is the one for you. It's got like, it's a, simple it's like basic six guards and i was like yeah. oh, i can do that <laughs> i can do that <laughs> so i i felt at the time it was like an easy you know i could i could learn that plus i was still in the you know knee deep and you know i think we were doing at the time we were instructing um i33 and we were doing you know uh, we weren't doing but we were doing uh, not german we were doing some more italian but it was just there were so many things going on i was like i couldn't i couldn't ha- like jump into a deep manual okay i mean the 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 reason i can do so many of these different systems is because this is my actual job mm-hmm. <laughs> right so mm-hmm. i can i can dedicate pretty much as much time as i need to it and most yeah. of my students don't do all of them most of my students do maybe one day three sword and buckler um or they do fiore and other medieval stuff yeah. or yeah. they do rapier or maybe sometimes they will fiore and capoeira but they don't yeah. they don't ha- they don't do all of it because we they uh, know spread yourself too thin it is it is in our instruction though we like to go from like we like to do for italian longsword we do you know like we do fiore and then we do um marazzo we do body um and it's great know, that like but, but marazzo doesn't do longsword oh uh, he does yeah, he, he has a two-handed sword but it's not a longsword yeah, it's a fetter. We we do kind of use it as a longsword though in longsword class. Okay. So we kind of work through that. Um, but it it makes sense because I find that like your body only moves so many. I don't teach it. 
because I, I, I do Fior and I do, that's it. I, and I help with, um, body. Um, but Marat's is just not my thing yet. I yeah, find it too could, complex. Like, it's and and the mechanics, the mechanics that Morozzo is using are quite different to what Fiore is doing. I oh, think. it is incredibly different, and it's like I think he has three moves after a decapit, like a decapitation. Like he's that's court fighting. Like it's all flourish. It's all. But we have like one of our instructors. Uh, you know, he has a flair for that kind of thing. It's his, you know, his baby. Yeah. Um, but. And that's what I find our club is able to do all those things because we have so many people who have studied and have a passion for one specific or, you know, a a handful of things. And so we're able to do, give, give our students that kind of access. Like I don't have enough students to do a rapier class on a Sunday, but I have a study group going on Wednesday where everyone who wants to do rapier comes and then we work through that. Okay. So same with like, uh, on the Sunday we did a spear class after, our main class, you know, um, but it's not all the students yet. Um, okay. and then the, two weeks before that. So every two weeks, what we've been doing is we ha- tack on another hour, two hours, and we do an alternative weapon. I think the weapon bo- um, before that was saber. Um, okay. you know, to, one of the things or like push for people to learn different, um, s- sword types too, I find is that most um, people who are interested in tournaments, you have like the big three, you have, you know, your long sword, you have your, you know, saber and you have, um, rapier mm-hmm. and that's, or, you know, or they mix it up and do sword alone. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, and I'll, it's a push for them to learn a lot of these other styles. Um, whether or not like sword and bucklers, I've never seen it yet in a tournament. I would love to, cause I think have it's you know? fun. I oh, haven't I'm, here in Canada okay. Okay. or the U S and I've been to the U S fighting as well. I just okay. haven't seen it, but we fight a lot with it when we do like, um, historical fencing. It's one of my favorites. So, yeah. So, yeah. uh, I, I presumably you're not working directly from the, uh, the Latin. I am not, I am no. not wor- working from the uh, Wampus manual. Like, no, I am not. I'm working from a translation for sure on that one. Okay. Um, but, uh, it, it happened to be, I, again, I can't emphasize enough. I love the play in sword fighting and I, there's not a weapon I haven't looked at and thought that looks incredibly fun. Sure. And then, and then I get interested in it and then I buy it. I have a collection of, I only have one long sword, but I have, I have, you know, probably a dozen swords and they're all different. And, yeah. you know, I'm I, just, I mean, <laughs> oh, like, yeah. like, I, I don't. I tend to get. I tend to be known for a couple of things because those are the things I've written books on. Yeah. But, but you know, yeah, you know, small sword. I, I even do the Bolognese stuff. I'm sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one phase three, I've done done a lot of. Yeah, I find that the same thing too. I, I, I'm always intrigued. There's nothing about us, you know, even like Amazon, like even you know, wrestling, even at this point. And I wouldn't call myself a wrestler, but I love it. You know, well, I'm, like I'm, not, I'm not a wrestler either, but if you're going to do Fury Longsword, you have to do wrestling and you have to do Absolutely. I don't, oh, think, yeah. I don't think you can, you can avoid them. No, I think one of the things that uh, I do recommend and which we don't do because I find that like when we're, when we're doing intro, mm-hmm. they, everyone thinks of the longsword. And so that's what they want. Like, you know, they imagine the movies, they think about, you know, historical fencing and that's the thing that they think about. And so that's what they want to take when we get them in with a the long sword, then we try to hook them in with, Oh, but you know, it's even better than that is dagger. 
Um, yeah. But I think if you're going to start in an ideal world, you'll start with dagger. Um, you long sword. I, I, I mix them up. So what I do, like for a beginner's class, yeah, I will get them started using doing just physical stuff with their hands, like yep. wrestling-based stuff, because they can already control their hands. And then we yep. do some dagger stuff. It's all in one class, in like a one ninety-minute class. Then yep. we do some related stuff with the dagger, mm-hmm. which gets them used to using a weapon, and it gives them the chance to do some sort of interactive weapon stuff. And then we do look basic longsword handling and that tends to be the end of the first class right so they've they've experienced all of it um and they've gotten the most probably the most kind of like technical development in their unarmed stuff but they've yeah. they came they, they all come for the swords yeah so i, I don't want to deny them the swords <laughs> right but also having having done dagger stuff then when they pick yep. up a sword, they realize that they're going to have to spend some time just learning to control this enormous bit of metal. Yeah. Right? So it kind of puts into context why we are, you know, why we're sort of giving them these other things as well. Because otherwise, the whole first class would basically just be learning how to handle the sword. And that is interesting for the first half an hour, but then it gets a bit dull. So it does. then by yeah. the next class, they've had a chance to you know, do, some re- do a bit more wrestling, do a bit more dagger stuff, and then start maybe doing some basic longsword defenses because they can now throw a reasonably safe longsword attack. That sort of that thing. Is, so I, so I, I integrate the whole thing. I think that's a, a really interesting way of doing it. And yeah, that's that actually sounds really amazing because our last class, um, when we were doing close plays, those close mm-hmm. plays, close binds, um, we stopped actually and we were like, let's pull out the dagger and we'll show you how this works, right? Me mm-hmm. and my... Um, and and yeah. I for the first time was like yeah but no I that the way that you are suggest like it just makes sense it makes so much more sense than than doing it that way than we, yeah, we I, have been doing it in a way I've I've um I've I've put all of that in a book called the Armadzari uh, workbook so what I'll do is I'll send you the ebook when we're done um, yeah, so you can that'd actually be look. and that that way you can sort of see how it all sort of Comes integrates together. with with itself yeah because, that'd be great because Fury's system it is one system of armored combat or armed combat it's not there's wrestling stuff and there's sword stuff and they're all separate it is yeah this is this is the art of arms applied to wrestling applied to dagger applied to longsword and he routinely refers to other sections of the book like um so for example when he's some of the longsword plays explicitly in the text refer to some of the dagger plays that's that's right yeah yeah and i find too like the dagger plays and even the rest, like it's all of the moves really essentially all the guards and a lot of the, the actions are the same in the wrestling and the dagger. And then also in the long sword, like you're preparing that kind of body movement all the way through. Yeah. So he's kind of setting you up right from the beginning in order to do yeah. that kind of long sword action. Yeah. Although the, the treatise is not, well, I don't think it should be considered a training manual. It's not designed it's, to teach people from the ground up. No, it's a it's no. a picture of the art. It is, yeah, it is his yeah. exposition of the art. I think I've I've often been told that it's it's a manual for for individuals who already already know how to fence or already are already engaged in warfare. They've already like this is not a yeah from the ground up. This is somebody who already kind of knows or has done it, and then that's the next step. Also, um, by the time a person of the knightly classes um, is old enough to read, yeah, they have yeah. or is, is being taught to read. They're also being taught all this other stuff already. So mm-hmm. the book, the book is really clearly not intended for training knights 
It's not no. a curriculum. It's a no. It's an exposition. I would yeah. Say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Slight left turn because we we can we can geek out about <laughs> specifics of, of different systems for ages, but um, I, I do have a list of things I need to get through. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, um, tell me about Sword Women of Canada. So, Sword Women of Canada. Again, it it started with going to buy the sword. It was a real like it really changed me and Caitlin when we went there. Um, mm-hmm. We've never seen so many women fencers. First off, it was all women fencers. It's a women's tournament, but um, it was amazing. Uh, we came home and um, we just kind of were like, didn't know how to let it go, like that concept go. And so, because we don't have a lot of women um, at the time when we, we were starting um, fencing, we didn't see a lot. We didn't really engage with a lot of women in sword fighting and, we wanted to create a space for the women that were here, the women we could get in touch with in order to, you know, like trade gear, talk shop, you know, Mm -hmm. things that would apply to us that may not apply to, you know, you know, dude um, bros is the word. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And a lot of the gear at the time we we were getting, it was like, it was always tailored to men too, like our men's body. And so we were just kind of shut out. And so, you know, hearing women, even in Europe, that were having kind of the same difficulties. Like we were really fortunate in the sense that we had some, we had talked to a lot of women and even they had had some not great experiences in their own clubs or in the community uh, at the time. And we came home and we were just like, at the time we hadn't really experienced that. We were in a kind of sheltered little club and it was wonderful. And we had a really great experience and, and the people that we worked with, the, the dude bros that were at our gym were amazing. They were fantastic and wonderful. And, but we wanted something for us, like for sure. to, to kind of encourage that safe space. Um, and so we started it and it was fabulous and it was, it was wonderful. And we had really good feedback and, um, but then through COVID something happened, like there was, you know, kind of people, it's hard. And, and, you know, we kind of dropped off and I was at home teaching my kids cause they didn't have school anymore. And so I had, right. you know, all those kids at home and we were kind of trying to navigate this whole thing. And unfortunately, like we, we only got so far with uh, sword women of Canada because we couldn't get out. We couldn't get the word out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even as small as the HEMA community, it's still vast in Canada. It's like, we're not, we're not connected as well. So like there are clubs and places close by, we had no idea that it even existed, right? Sure. And so, you know, when we had sat down and really talked about it, we we wanted to have access. We wanted people to have access. And, and, and the way to do that was to kind of, you know, the concept developed of having a um, Ontario HEMA tracker, kind of. Yeah. Um, you know, a kind of consolidation where we would know where all the clubs were. Um, and so that we started a, um, a group, um, and it's full of things. It's basically like an Ontario HEMA club online for everyone, anyone who's interested in HEMA, anyone who goes to a club, if you're an individual who's like on your own in North Bay and you don't have a club, you can still join the group and yeah. And you have access to like everything. Like we have, you know, a club guide, we have, you know, a general chat. So it's. It's online. We have it on, um, it's on, uh, discord. We have a discord where we, yeah, where we can talk. We also have, you know, gear for sale. We have uh, related, we even have a meme page for people who just put, you know, it's an online community for anyone in Ontario 
who is interested. And we have a lot of people who are not in Ontario actually in it as well. Sure. Who come to Ontario every once in a while to, to play. But uh, one of the things we get when we do a lot of these, you know, other events for um, like historical events is people will ask us, well, you know, do is where are you as a club? Can I join? And oftentimes, because yeah. we travel around Ontario doing this, we're not close to them. And so one of the main things we were... Yeah, yeah. Ontario is bigger than most countries. It's, it's a vast, <laughs> that's not, that's vast not, That's not place. strictly true, but that is... It is yeah, it well, is, you, you can both be in Ontario, but it's actually probably quicker to get to New York than it yeah, is to get you can, to the yeah, other Yeah, absolutely. You can be yeah. like seven hours away or, you know, eight hours yeah. away. So um, so what we wanted to do was we want... we. <sighs> Our goal as a club, one of our goals, uh, when we first started fencing as a club, we weren't a club. Technically, we were a fight club. We were just going to get together on Wednesdays, a bunch of people, and we were just going to, you know, like practice. Mm -hmm. And then we realized we're going to run out of people to practice with because the club that was in our our town closed and they moved to like Nova Scotia or something. And so we thought we're not going (laughs) to, we're only going to ever play with us unless we travel to another club. What do we do? Right? Like, so we thought, okay, well, you know, we're, solid you know we we know we kind of know our stuff and so we started a club because we thought well we'll train people to fight us you know we'll be but be- what will make us better fencers is if we have other people to train with and so in order that's to how that, i started we- <laughs> that's honestly that's when when we started the door dealer society it was so me and paul could find other people to fence with but then we realized we had to teach them how to do it first and yeah that's how we started like 30 that's years ex- ago yeah that's exactly what it that's exactly how we started. And so, um, you know, one of our main goals, I think at our heart, at our core, one, one of them is, you know, spreading the word of HEMA, but also, you know, the more people who do it, the more people that are training, the more, you know, ideas that come around, the more, you know, variety you get, the better, you know, it only makes you a better fencer. Ultimately it only does. And so, so when we go to these events, one of the things we get is, you know, where are you? And it's sure enough, we're never close enough. And so we, poor Caitlin started tracking down all of these clubs to tell it, like she would, we would this, tell them I'm to sorry, email this, us. This, this Caitlin sounds like an absolute fucking legend. Oh, she's amazing. She is amazing. Uh, she's amazing. And, and, uh, my life. Maybe, maybe, I should inter- maybe I should oh, interview her next. You should, you should, <laughs> okay. she, you should. Cause she, she literally does all the behind the scenes things. Like she's not okay. an instructor. She doesn't instruct. Um, everyone you'll find at our club has a specific job and Caitlin's job is like a, she wears multitudes of hats, but her thing is like, she coordinates all the stuff. She's our coordinator. So she's, so yeah. basically she, she's the grown up in the room. Oh yes, she is. Yes, she is. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I have a calendar. We have a calendar, a group, like a fan, mm-hmm. like a linked calendar and she puts all of our engagements in it. And oh then God. I've linked my, Oh yeah. So I've linked my husband's into it. Cause he'll ask me like, what are you doing? And I'm like, are you, are you busy on this day? What are you doing on that day? And I, I tell him all the time, like you have to look at the calendar, you know, Caitlin <laughs> plans my life and I just do what it says in my calendar. <laughs> she's amazing. She's honestly, she's amazing. Um, but you know, so because we're fencing and we're fighting, she's able to discuss and talk with everyone that's there. Right. So, um, so one of the questions being asked is where's the, where's the club. And so that's what kind of came out of it. Like we were getting so many emails about, you know, uh, where clubs were that we thought, you know, we're going to do this thing for, you know, and so, because she's a, she's actually a, um, a computer tech, like this is what she does for a living. She set it up. She's so savvy that way. And then it just blossomed from there. Okay. 
So it's, it's an- I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit sad to hear that she's got a proper job because um, yeah. I was kind of thinking, do you know what? She sounds like exactly the sort of person who should work yeah. as a, as an assistant or organizer or manager for, I think, I think maybe puppy herder is the word for, oh, for, for people like me. Yes. I, yeah, I have a, a cat I herder. Have, yeah. I mean, my, my, my assistant Katie is absolutely brilliant at all the stuff yep. that she does. Um, she doesn't, Check my calendar though, mm. and I would I would probably benefit from having someone who knew oh. where I was supposed to be at any given time because oh, I often okay. don't. Oh. She oh I don't either because I have so many things going on on my you know I do a lot of things but she she's doesn't just check my calendar she's the one who organizes my calendar for me and wow. all of us quite frankly like she is a godsend honestly okay um. So like when it comes to instruction and like the hands-on kind of aspect, those things like we, me and, and Kieran do, and we brought on two other instructors, um, to help us and, and Kyle as well. Like Kyle is on maternity leave right now from the club. Um, but we all work together and we all work well and we all do our thing well. And that's what makes us work so well as a club, because we do have so many, we have six board members or five board members and each of us has a specific job to do. And as long as we're doing those jobs and, and the fact that we're also able to, I can do Caitlin's job for a very short amount of time. And Caitlin, you know, we have somebody like, uh, you know, Brent can do my job for a short amount of time. You know, like we have somebody that can do that. We have coverage. We have, so we're not running ourselves ragged, but yeah. Um, it really works out that way. It, it works out great. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, when I was doing the research for this interview, because mm-hmm. uh, basically, you know, if you're just some bloke looking up women online, you're a creepy weirdo. But if you run yeah. a podcast and you're interviewing women for your show, you actually have to kind of look into their social media and look into their work stuff and if they've got a LinkedIn yeah. and if they've got an Instagram or whatever. So that's that's just part of the job. All right. So yeah. not, not creepy weirdo podcaster (laughs) it's different (laughs) okay all right um why is your instagram account called west end village that's an interesting question um so i my last name is west oh but yes yes. it is yes i've noticed that yeah i even said it in the introduction but i hadn't made the connection but i also live in the west end village i actually live i so in my the area I live in is historic. It's a historic community. Um, maybe not historic to, to like, you know, in, in, you know, across the seas, but, uh, my house was built before Canada was a colony, like before, really? or sorry, before Canada was like, you know, Canada. So when it was just okay. a colony, um, and so a part of that heritage, you know, um, designation, uh, this has been deemed the West end village. Um, okay. but also again, like I have, I have, half a hockey team as children, but we, I have, we used to run a games club out of my basement for the kids. You know, we, I, you know, on any given day when you have four kids, you know, 10 more is not a blink in the eye, you know? So, so, uh, you know, any given day we have like a multitude of children here. Um, they're older now, so it's not quite as intense, but, um, you know, we're always open. I, we've had our, my husband's dad fenced in college and my husband had done a little bit of, you know, Olympic fencing. And, um, so we have a lot of that kind of equipment here and the kids have often spent time outside, you know, fencing. Um, once I got into the historical, 
HEMA, um, my older sons practice HEMA outside and their friends come over and we do it with, you know, wasters and things and, sure. you know, walk them so through. Th- does your husband do historical martial arts? He doesn't, okay. <laughs> funny enough. And it's not because he doesn't want to. Um, ah, but it's because children and time and life and... Well, well, no, I think um, everyone needs something for themselves. Yeah. And me and my husband already share, like we rock climb together and he has also um, sports and activities that he does on his own okay. um, with his buddies. And so this became kind of my thing. Okay, fair enough. So he just leaves, yeah. it, leaves it to you. He that's, leaves that's it. That's sensible. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, so West End Village is, is a sort of, it's where you live, but it's also play on your name it is a play on my name yeah it is it's where i live it's also a play on my name it's also you know have you always lived there i you, have you seem very i ident- you seem to identify with where you live for i i moved around a lot when i was a kid and for other reasons, i moved a lot, um, a lot a lot i don't i don't identify with any sense of place at all really so i i did move around when i was a kid um, I lived in other provinces. My husband moved around a lot. Um, he lived all over Europe in the United States um, when he was a child. And so I think when we found the house that we were going to settle in, all like the majority of our kids have, have, were born in this house. And so mm-hmm. they've lived here their entire lives. And so one of the things that we wanted to establish was you know, roots for them because it's hard yeah. when you're a, a kid that moves around so often, especially when you're younger. And so we kind of wanted to settle down and, and put roots in. And so this is the primary house, like our house, even though we're, I'm not from Barry. Um, okay. I'm from another, I'm from another town in, in Ontario called Spanish Ontario. Okay. Interesting name. Um, interesting name. I know it's, it's so like a half an hour away from. <laughs> why did you choose Barry? Um, Barry is kind of that waypoint between being in the city, Toronto, and kind of having the Muskokas or like, um, still like the wilderness because okay. we're, we're kind of smack in the middle. And I, I love being by the water and, um, I just can't even imagine myself living in a space that doesn't have water. And so we're, we're not that far away from the lake, Simcoe, Simcoe Lake. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I, I was in Barry briefly and I stayed at, um, Chapel Collins house and, and then we went to the seminar the next day and then we went out for dinner, I think. And then we went back to his house and then I went back to Toronto the next day. So I didn't really see much of Barry. Yeah. So it's, it's quite lovely. It's still kind of like in that waypoint. So you're kind of, you know, my kids can take the train. We can, we used to take the train all the time and go into the city because, you know, go to the museums and go to the art and, you know, all yeah. that stuff is, it's 45 minutes away which is wow. in Canada. It's not that far. It's that's like, next door. Yeah. Yeah. That's next door. But then I can go 45 minutes the other way and I could be literally, you know, in the woods for, I mean like right in the deep of Muskoka. So, right. um, it's something that I like cause in Spanish Ontario it has 500 people in it. It's a very tiny town and it never gets any bigger and it never gets <laughs> any smaller. Tiny. <laughs> it's actually, yeah, we don't have a mayor. We have a reeve. It's very small. And so oh, wow. I like that. Yeah. I like that kind of, you know, it's, it's like Northern Ontario. So we're in the, like, it's, you know, I like that aspect and, mm-hmm. but I also being from a small town, I really appreciate the city. Like I, I love it, but for the but kids, that could go either way. So some, yeah. some people from small towns cannot abide cities and some yeah. are like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. This is, this is great. This has all sorts of things going for it. Yeah. So we tried to do it kind of in the middle, uh, a middle spot, um, okay. that I could access, you know, the theater and, and all the goody things that I love about the city, but still have access to the, to the, you know, wilderness. 
Yeah, lovely. Okay, now I have a couple of questions that I ask everyone, um, or most people, because not every, you know, as you know, you had the opportunity to decide not to answer certain questions, or you. Yeah. Well, I just I just wouldn't ask them, um, but you have not. You have not said don't ask these questions, so I will. No, All no. Right. Yep. All right. So, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Oh, um. Okay, so the best idea I haven't acted on is I know this is this is going to sound really awful, but I need to buy a mask, a new Hema mask. And okay. my best idea is that I want to buy two of them, and I want to get a really good one, and one that's kind of cheap but still you know good. Because when we do reenactment stuff, I often headbutt people when we get okay. into close plays, which I yeah. I know I love it. Yeah, you should. But but I find that I ruin <laughs> I ruin my mask doing that. Because it's not excellent for then fencing. So I, my best idea that I haven't acted on yet is to buy two masks at one time, a cheap one and a better one. One, one, one for strictly headbutting and one for strictly tournament fencing. Yes, I love that mask. No, so 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 I would I would say you shouldn't be using fencing masks for longsword at all. I would say you should no. be using one of these, which is the Terry Tyndall style mask with uh, the suspension and the chin strap and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, I must have been hit in the head of many thousands of times with this. I've had it for, well, I don't know, 12 years, 10, 15, I don't know, a long time anyway. Um, and I honestly, I wouldn't put my head in anything else to do long sword. And he's... it's got this big steel plate and yeah, you can for bash people in the head with it. <laughs> honestly, it's my favorite thing to do. Um, but I didn't think he was still making them. Um he handed over the production to Edwin Gilbert makes uh, Terry Tyndall designed masks. Um, yep. He's at horsebows.com. Um, he is kind of retiring though as well. And, but I am in, I have, Terry is an old friend of mine and Terry is retired and he has no commercial interest in the masks. So I have, uh, with his permission, I have found someone in Europe who has the capability to actually have them produced properly? I uh, think that would be by, by a factory. So, if all goes well, sometime maybe in 2024, they should become really properly commercially available. I think uh, that would be amazing. Uh, one of my gripes about fencing masks um, is that they're not made for HEMA flat out. They're no, not made they're for not. the kind of concussive blows that you get. They're not, they're just, we're using something that is. It would be like wearing a bike helmet while you're driving a NASCAR. Exactly. It just it doesn't make any sense. sense. Yeah. But it's it's uh, it's the only thing that we can you know what I mean. It's the only yeah it doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, so I know like we were I was trying to look for one of those with something with like a harness in the inset. Yeah. But it's we yeah that would be wonderful actually. Congratulations if you do that um, that will be amazing. In and in the short term, mm -hmm. um, I mean I. I tested a helmet designed for historical martial arts by i think it's by windless uh i'm just typing it in on a helmet um yeah windless steelcraft certainly at, at some point made a helmet designed for historical martial arts which was basically a fairly simple helmet like a regular armored combat helmet i forget what yeah. type of helmet but you'd recognize it but instead of having the usual isolates and whatnot it had a perforated steel plate that went over the face and it had an aventail that worked really well yeah um huh. so that also again you know 
people yeah. used helmets like that historically, not not for with the perforated face plate, face plate so yeah. much, but for a reason. Um, yeah. And the, the fencing mask was designed for use with a foil. Yeah, which, it's not. And it works beautifully with a foil. It does, but it, that's what it was meant for. And it's yeah. one of the other things I talk to my students about when they ask me about gear. And I, I always remind them, or I always tell them flat out, I don't I don't know what anyone else does, but like the padding and the, the safety gear that you're buying to, to practice or to fight with is not designed, it's only designed to minimize impact, like the damage. Like there's nothing that will save, is safe. There's nothing that's going to protect you 100%. This is just to minimize the damage that could incur from okay. the impact. Or I would happened. I would rephrase it because it doesn't yeah. minimize the damage. It changes the damage. Yeah. Right? Yes, you're so right. So I, yeah. I would rephrase it as you wear the equipment to allow your opponent to actually hit you. Yeah. Yeah. But they should just... They should make it clear that you have been hit, but they shouldn't actually be using any force because that gear is not equipped for it. No, you're right. It, and that is true. Like, um, you know, one of the things that we do talk about, uh, to you as a club is like, um, being a good partner and a part of being a good partner is vocalizing what you're comfortable with and asking yeah. your partner that you're fencing what they're comfortable with and being honest about it too. Because if you, if they're hitting too hard, you need to be able to vocalize that. And as yeah. a good partner, you need to be able to hear that. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, and it is essential to, to having, you know, we want, we want to play with our friends. We don't want to break them. So they don't want to play with us anymore. <laughs> okay. So, so the best idea you haven't acted on yet is actually get yourself a Terry Tindall mask. That's exactly it. That's hundred percent. Yep. Brilliant. Okay. Yep. So my last question, somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? Oh, I had to ask a couple of my club members what they would do. Um, okay. And it's funny because there was, there was two main schools of thought was uh, more getting the word out more. Okay. And the other one How? was, uh, oh, they were like more demonstrations. And I was like, ah. Uh. And then one of the other ones was, um, oh, shoot, what was it? It was something along those lines. Like, But I, I, I think what I really thought about it was if I only had a million dollars, which is not commercially a lot of money. You can have as much money as you want. It's oh, imaginary. Really? So oh, yeah, I mean, okay. make it a hundred million if you want. Make it five billion. I don't care. <laughs> but I think that yeah, doing either like making an info um, seminar or something for people in order to help them start up clubs, like an like a okay. like a like a you know so, how to get insurance. So, uh, so you a know, club, like a club starting resource thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think you know people don't know how to start a club. People don't know, you know, do I want to be a for-profit? Do I want to be non-profit? What are the, you know, pros and cons? You know, how do I access, you know, um, insurance is a big one. You know, like how do I access insurance? How do I do that? You know, we're, we talk to people a lot and we've had a couple meetings with other potential, you know, um, HEMAs about starting clubs. You know, we've had a, mm -hmm. a, a few of them over the last couple of years of it's not as hard as you think. Let's walk through it. We'll, you know, we'll have a team's meeting. We'll talk it. We'll tell you everything that we need, everything that you need. And I think that having that Reddit, like something like that available to everyone across the world, like be it China, Japan, you know, like, you know, India, you know, you know Russia. Yeah. The, you know, any the, of the, the, South the difficulty is that what you need to start a club is different in every yeah. Political place. Like I yeah. what what you need to start a club in the UK is different to what you need in Barry, is different Absolutely. to what you need in Mexico yeah. and so on. So yeah. there would there yeah. would need to be um localization yeah. for all of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. 
but I think it would be interesting. I think what that would bring in a lot more people. I think ultimately having access a readily available access to clubs would make it much more um, prominent in the community. It would make it more prominent in, you know, the world. I think having, um, it would be, it would go very far and, and putting HEMA on the map. I think a lot more. I also think the more people who do HEMA, the more people who spend money on HEMA like things. And so those products become more available. Like when I think about, you know, years ago when we can barely get, you know, a jacket for a woman or like, No, no, seriously. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, no, 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 no. I, I am, I am, I'm doing the old man thing of you, yeah. youth of today. You have no idea because back, back in the nineties, we were making stuff out of carpet. Oh, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So yeah, okay, yeah. It's difficult for women to get jackets that fit properly. Yeah, yeah. Right, hundred percent, and that is a problem, and that should definitely be addressed. Yeah. But the whole equipment scene yeah. now is. A hundred times better than it was ten years ago, oh. which is a hundred times better than it was ten years before that. Ten years before that, yeah. and and then what? There, there wasn't an equipment scene. No one was making stuff for historical yeah. martial arts in the nineties because it didn't exist. Exist. Someone was saying something, and I was like, "Oh, these gloves, gloves are never good." And I was like, "At least they're not the hot." We when I first started, we were using hockey gloves. Yeah, horrendous, awful, like just. I, I, awful. I've used I've used lacrosse gloves back in the day. Yep. Oh yeah, not and good. then. Um, not good. The one of the gripes I have about um, modern HEMA fencing for women today is the chest protector. Oh, sure. It only goes to like mid, like mid, like just mid rib. And so like all of my vital organs are always exposed. And if I buy a, a men's hardened chest protector, they're too high in the uh, armpit area. So it right. always chafes and cuts. So there's never an in between. And I'm always like, it's great that you want to protect, you know, my chest, but also my vital organs are very vastly important as well. <laughs> You'd think. <laughs> You'd think. We started making our own out of uh, out of buckets, actually. Yeah, that's a common solution. Have, yeah. have you come across um, – I interviewed – so Veronica Young, um, who's an industrial designer. Um, she's in episode 139. The name of the episode is the Etty of Chest Protection. She was running an Indiegogo campaign – um, until the 6th of January, 2023. So obviously it's long past, but mm-hmm. from, from what, from the conversation I have with her, she had a solution that would f- basically one size fits all. And it does actually work. Um, because it's not, it's not molded. It's more like, it's more like a bucket. Yeah. Um, so have a look at that episode. Um, oh, I will. And, and maybe look up her stuff because she might be producing them. I don't know. Yeah. Cause once, once the, that, the, Kickstarter's done. They usually go into production. Yeah, I'll yeah. have a look at that. Okay. Um, so we sort of got slightly off topic from the... Um, what <laughs> what would I do with a million what, what, dollars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so you'd, you'd create this... I mean, actually, not really, because one of the big problems that many clubs have is access to the equipment, Yeah. right? And yeah. one of the biggest expenses, if you choose to set up a club this way, is buying equipment for the beginners which we we've done that yeah it's expensive we it's expensive we didn't so we're a non-for-profit again so we don't Mm -hmm. all the proceeds that we make go into uh the club and so um you know we're able to budget for those kinds of things in the beginning it was you know primarily insurance paying off insurance we tried to keep our um fees as minimal as we can at the same time being able to grow as, as a, as a club. 
Um, and because we're a nonprofit, we also get spaces quite inexpensively as well, which is also helps right. us. Yeah. So. That's, that's, a, that's a one major reason why people do it as a nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah. So the schools and stuff we generally get for free, except for the administration costs. And then, um, then if we rent space from the city, which they're, we have a wonderful relationship with our city because we, we do a lot do of, a stuff, lot of for stuff for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the spaces tend to be, um, affordable. Okay. And they work with us quite well. If, we, if if there's a space that we want um, and it's not available, they work with us to get you know either a bigger space or something that's um, that's that, that we need. Yeah. Yeah, and, but that is a major consideration as to whether you go nonprofit or for profit. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, so we have there's there's another um, like a private club in town here, Nemesis. Yeah. And they are for profit. And one of the stipulations about joining is you have to have all your kit. Oh, really? You yeah. Have to have all like your kit. It's funny because yeah. I, I ran a I ran a for profit school, and the way we did it is in Finland. The way we did it was um, my teaching was paid for, and um, you know, and the basically the students organized themselves as a not for profit organization, and I had my company because it was my job. Mm-hmm. And the association hired me to teach seminars and teach classes and provide the space and all that sort of thing. So there was this kind of symbiosis between a company and a not-for-profit, mm-hmm. which which yep. made life a lot easier. And um, what you know, I, it's it's always going to be well. What's the best way to put it? It's the sign of a much more developed community that it's even practical to say you have to have all your kit before you can join our club because it yeah. means that they've been training somewhere else first. Yeah, that's right. Their focus huh. is on uh, tournament fencing specifically. Okay. Yeah, it would yeah. be. Yeah. Whereas ours is we have all the things that you need. You don't – you just come in, you know, bring your water bottle, nice pair of, you know, mm. comfy shoes and, you know, comfortable pants, and then we provide everything that you need. And if you decide to keep on going – we can still provide those things if you want to buy kit. Great. Um, but if you are going to tournaments and doing other things off premise, you know, then you, need your own let, kit. you need your own kit. Okay. That's, that's not a bad way to do it. So, so the club loaner gear is just inside the club. Do you have a permanent space? We do. And we don't, we have a permanent space in the sense that um, it's a gym in a school. We have two schools that we three now because we picked up a Friday that we are always in the same kind of location for those, but they're not our own personal space. All right, so you can't leave all the equipment there. No, but we actually have a storage locker right by, like conveniently okay. ten minutes away from everyone's house. So yeah. Okay, uh, so yeah. That, that works out quite well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's it is a it's a lovely situation to get yourself into when you actually have your own permanent training space oh yeah yeah um it is and and you know able to leave the, those kinds of things there and i i'm really happy for like ito's just finally got into his own permanent space which is lovely. Oh, has he? oh good for i him. think so yeah yeah um but um it's, it's, it's so expensive it's so expensive and the rent here is just you know incredibly Crazy. expensive yeah and we would have to charge so much um, in order to facilitate that. And it's not kind of something we want to do to some people. Okay. Um, we want to make it affordable so that like every, no matter where you come from economically, you're, you, we well, want to make it work. Okay. The way, the way I handled that issue is mm-hmm. um, I had the full rate and I had the discount rate. 
mm-hmm. and people just chose the rate that they could afford. Oh, so the, okay. there was no, I, you know, the discount rate was was intended for students and unemployed people, and you know, mm-hmm. that that you know, people who would normally be, have access to that kind of discount. But I never, I never asked to see any kind of like Paperwork. proof that they were yeah. entitled to it or whatever. My view was my people will deal fairly. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm sure some people paid the lower rate because they, you know, they just didn't want to pay anymore. But also, yeah. I'm also pretty sure that plenty of people paid the higher rate, even though technically they were entitled to the lower one. So, yeah. you know. I, I think if you're, you're fair with people and you give them that option, not many. I'm every, There's always one or two, but yeah, the majority sure. of people treat you fairly as well in that situation. So yeah. that is actually a really good option if we because we would love to have a permanent space. Yeah, and the um, thing is, is to make it, the trick is to make it a regular monthly payment that they don't have to think about, so yeah. it's, it's automatic, and and to give them a free choice. Like I know, I know at least one one club that has a super cheap level. I don't know, like fifteen dollars a month or something, and then yeah. a sort of regular discount level of like forty dollars a month or something, and then yeah. a well, if you can afford it, eighty dollars a month would be lovely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and people, you know, and people also can then adjust. You know, if their circumstances change, like they get they a better job, they might raise it, or if they lose their job, they might drop it, or whatever. And there doesn't have to be any of that, you know, justification of that. There doesn't have to be a conversation about it. It's just something they choose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good thought. way of doing it. If we could, if we. <laughs> If we can find the space to do that, which, you know, we're we're always kind of keeping an eye out for, then we'd love to do that for sure. I think that is the best way to do it. Right now, the way we do it is people don't pay by class. They pay again, like monthly or yeah. in blocks of three months. Yeah, that's a good yeah good way to do it too. Um, yeah. But giving them that, that variable rate, Mike, you, you'll probably see an increase in income. If the club has more money, it can do more things, especially for people who can't afford it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do agree with that. That's something to take to the next board meeting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that it is a, it's a, one of the things about, you know, being a nonprofit is we do have a board. So we have a board of five and, and we have to vote, you know, sure. for everything. But it, I mean, we're, we're pretty much on the same page. Oftentimes there's not very much, you know, disagreement when it comes to all of us together. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Sam. It's been lovely to meet you. Thanks for having me. It's been really great. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sam. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, Go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. And if you want, get access to those fabulous pictures of a 16th century fencing doublet. I would like to especially thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have quit long ago. And it's really for them that I'm scurrying like hell on a Thursday to get it out and back to Katie, because I would not want to disappoint them. Everyone else, you know, if it comes out a few days late, who cares? But my patrons deserve it on time, and that's what they're going to get. You can join them at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. 
That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I would also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorned the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next time when I'll be talking to Dr. James Dilly, who is an archaeologist and craftsman specializing in prehistoric technologies such as flint napping and casting bronze weaponry. He is the founder of Ancient Craft, a company that provides expertise and experiences to individuals and educational institutions. And I can confirm casting a bronze sword with James is very good fun. I went and did that uh, in November and it was great. He has three archaeology degrees, a BSc exploring polished stone axes, an MA focusing on bone flintknapping hammers, and a PhD from the University of Southampton on upper, on upper Paleolithic hunting technology. We have a fantastic conversation and I'm sure you'd like to hear it. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And if you have an extra minute, please do leave a review. And of course, if you've enjoyed this particular episode, share it widely, share it with your friends, share it with anyone who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for listening, and I will see you soon. Mm-hmm.